Welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019, Lecture 26, Lecture 9 on the Purgatorio. Day 3 concluded and Day 4 begun. Today we are going to see the 6th and 7th cornices of gluttony and lust, respectively. We will see Dante's dream of Leah and Rachel, the fire, and we will see the final words of Virgil today. So... I thought about starting with a, an interesting allegory, but I'm going to save that for later. Let's get straight to Terra 6 because we have so much to get through today. Terra 6 is the Terrace of the Gluttons. So, recall, Dante, Virgil, and Statius, and it is Dante, Virgil, and Statius, not just Dante and Virgil, at this point, rise up to the next Terrace. Dante has one of his many peas removed from his head. He's down to two at this point in Gluttony because there are two remaining terraces. And there we see two remarkable trees. In fact, first we see one, and then we hear another, which is supposedly derived from the seed of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which Eve ate. And these trees, apparently, with these gluttons, excite desire in the spirits for food and drink and only frustrate the craving. It reminds me quite a bit of the punishment of Tantalus from the Odyssey Book 11. He has food forever right above his reach, and when he reaches for it, it gets just beyond his grasp, and he has water just beneath his chin, and he's constantly thirsty, parched whenever he drink, tries to drink, it recedes below him. So these gluttons, these people that overindulged in the pleasure of eating and drinking during the course of their lives are now made emaciated and starving with a constant desire for food. Um, uh, wow. And so... This, these souls here certainly expiate the sin of gluttony while the trees from the tr branches and the leaves, disembodied voices, again poetry or song, sings out examples of first temperance, remember the structure of purgatory, expiating virtue example in art, penitence themselves, and then uh, the vice that the penitents have been, um, uh, the, the penitents embodied in life comes third. So the three parts of each Terrace are virtue art, penitence, and vice art, just to put it uh, mundanely. In any case, we will then, after hearing the examples of, or of temperance, hear examples of gluttony, and they are pretty famous. In any case, the first example of temperance is the, is the first example in art of a virtue featuring the same person that is featured on all seven terraces. That is Mary. And she says something that she said before to us. Vinam non haben. They have not wine. The same example as was used amongst the envious is used here. Uh, sort of lack of creativity from Dante here. Uh, I, I suppose that could be dated uh, or, or, or debated. In any case, the idea here is that these people do not have wine, and so they, they deal with not having wine in this case. Uh, the, full, the full story is not included, but the idea being that they have not wine and that is okay, and so that is how you use temperance in order to fight against your gluttonous desire. When you don't have something that you would like to have because it is very pleasant, then you accept that circumstance. And that's a much better way to be satisfied in life, because if you are constantly trying to fulfill your desires, you will never fulfill your desires because desire can never be fulfilled. Whereas if you learn to, say, be happy or satisfied with what you have, then of course your desires can be fulfilled because you aren't constantly working to fulfill them, which is a very interesting way of looking at things. In any case, we then get three more examples. The first example is one of Roman women. They were supposedly so, um, uh, so well-trained, so disciplined, that they could exist just by drinking water, according to Thomas Aquinas, a famous 13th century uh, theologian. 
And so uh, that's pretty incredible. Then we get a couple other examples. Golden Age humans who supposedly existed on nectar and ambrosia, just like the gods from the Greek and the Roman tradition, Greco-Roman, as it's often called. And then there's John the Baptist who fed on locusts. I don't know if you've ever seen the locust. It's a giant bug. It's like a giant, uh, kind of pretty cockroach. But every 17 years they swarm in places like Nashville, and they'll, be, they'll cover the entire side of a building. It's, it's, it looks like a plague. I can see why those Egyptians... Uh, back in Exodus, thought that locusts were plagues. They, they do come like a plague. In any case, Gold Age humans, Roman women, John the Baptist, did not need much food. They are good examples of temperance for those who had too much of a sweet tooth during life, the gluttons. Alright, within the branches of the second tree, a mysterious voice uh, that identifies itself as an offshoot of a tree higher up whose fruit, fruit was eaten by Eve. That's obviously the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is within Eden, or terrestrial paradise, which we'll see Cantos 28 to 33. Well, this tree gives us two noteworthy episodes of gluttony or self-indulgence. These are obviously the more interesting stories, always. The sinful or vicious stories are always the interesting ones. Well, the first one comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. So we see Ovid again up here. And the example is of the very famous marriage of the Lapis, or it is the story of the Lapis and the Centaurs. So, there are these Lapis. They were having a marriage. And they invited centaurs. Remember that centaurs, as we know from Nessus and Chiron, down amongst the violent in the Inferno, are half man on top, half uh, animal on the bottom. Just like they are in Harry Potter with Ferenzi and all of them. In any case, these centaurs are known to be rather bestial and not, uh, and, and they cause violence or they cause trouble whenever they drink wine. Well, at a wedding, this wedding happened to have wine, unlike that Venom non-Hobbit one that Mary and Jesus was at. Uh, or were at, and so the centaurs get drunk, and they try to abscond with the women. They try and steal all the women from the wedding, including the bride. Well, uh, Medusa's head happened to be kept there, and it was used to turn them to stone after a large, large battle scene. And I actually highly encourage you, if you are interested in the Homeric and the Virgilian battle scenes from the Aeneid and the Iliad last year, definitely read Ho uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses. This battle scene is intense, and uh, the descriptions of people losing teeth and heads and necks breaking are very, very, very uh, descriptive. And so, if you're interested in that sort of thing, definitely watch it. All right, second example comes from the Old Testament. Sort of a weird example, sort of one of those odd, sort of archaic, uh, far from us in our modern consciousness Old Testament examples. There's this guy, Gideon. He was the commander of, a, uh, of an army. And he was told that he needed to get his army down to size. He had something like 10,000 people and had to get it down to 300. And so the Lord, God, gave him a test, which was, take your men down to the water. And those who uh, make cups of their hands, they, you keep in the army. And those that just drink with their mouths to the water, well, them you get rid of. Huh, interesting. In any case, I actually have that mentioned here. So, O Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongue as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, which sounds like it's bad, but isn't in this case. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Uh, so they drank with their faces to the water, which is considered more like what an animal does, right? Like think of your cat, think of your dog. Does it cup the water or does it stick its snout? into the water. And then think about you. Do you drink directly from a stream or do you use cups? Uh, the idea is that the more utensils you use to eat, the more civilized and less animal you are. Which is why some people cut their pizza. Not me. In any case, all the rest got down on their knees to drink. He, 
the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. The idea is that those who actually cupped, they did not give into their passion quite as much as the ones who just stuck their heads down into the water. These are the examples of what So those men who gave in to gluttony did not get to fight for their Lord, did not get that great glory. They were kept um, from the glory in the same way that the people who uh, did not follow Moses quickly amongst the slothful were kept from glory. Apparently these vices keep you from things you really want or rewards of much greater value than the temporary, small, uh, superficial rewards that you grant yourself. Uh, I, I suppose daily. In any case, Dante here meets two poets amongst the gluttonous. They are Farisi Donati, who is a relative of his wife, as well as Bonajunta da Luca. Remember that da means of. It's just like von or van from German or Danish. And so, Farisi is from the Donati family. Something interesting about the Donati family is that we find uh, representatives of it in each canticle of the Divine Comedy. Uh, Farisi, obviously here we find in the Purgatorio, his sister, Picarda, will meet in Canto 3 of the Paradiso. She'll be amongst the uh, faithful, blemished by inconstancy. She'll actually be with somebody named Constance, ironically enough. And his brother, Corso, will actually be taken down to hell. He's not yet dead at this, in this, at this moment, but he will be taken down to the Inferno uh, after he does die. In any case, let's talk about Farisi specifically. He was a childhood friend of Dante, and as I said, he was a relative of Dante's wife, uh, Gemma Donati. Now, something he and Dante were known to have done with each other is in exchanged insulting sonnets called tinsone with each other. And in fact, uh, these tinsone uh, are very crude, and I'm going to show you six of them. A uh, basic attribute of them is that, uh, and I don't know if I have it listed here, well, yeah, I'll, I'll say it in a second, but uh, I'll say it now, too, is that you would take up the theme of one poem and then use that as the theme of the next one. You would insult, say, uh, 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 you'll see Dante insults the wife of Farisi, saying that she's cold in bed, and then Dante, uh, uh, Farisi will say, oh, well, I needed some extra money, so I went to the, uh, I, I, I went to the uh, burial mound, not the burial mound, cemetery, and there I found your father digging up a grave in order to find extra wealth. And so you can see it's like, your wife is so, your dad is so. It's sort of like the yo mama jokes that you might have told when you were young. Yo mama so poor that you live in a box or something like that. <laughs> you live in a box. Or the, the bathroom is the next corner on the left or something like that. Uh, in any case, that's the sort of, uh, you know, crude, vulgar, youthful joke that they would make for with each other. And we all sort of smile because probably you know that you have made such vulgar and crude jokes with other young people before and taken pleasure from and yet, now Dante and Farisi, rather than laughing about it, they sort of feel weighed down by it. They sort of are embarrassed by their behavior. Dante is showing that just as those in purgatory transform morally and become morally more upright, so is he becoming more morally upright at this point. In any case, something about Farisi, when he first appears to Dante, something about these gluttonses, they are not uh, rather large and corpulent as you might expect them to be. They are emaciated, skinny. Their faces are ravaged and tiny. In fact, are not tiny, but uh, withered within like a withered fruit. The idea being here that they are now starving in the same way that they glutted themselves while they were alive. So 
starved is for he see that you can't even uh, that Dante doesn't even recognize him when he first sees him. In fact, he thinks that his face looks like a big imp, like this. This is where it comes from. If you look at the face of a person and you inscribe the two arches of an M above the eyes, it does look like there's an M there. Well, when you add in the eyes, it looks like it's saying the word Omo. Omo is the Italian word, the medieval Italian word for Uomo in Italian, which comes from the Latin word Homo, like Homo sapiens, which means the same, or excuse me, means man. Homo in Greek means the same. Um, and so, we are homo sapiens, wise man. So the idea being that what's the cause of all vice and sin in the world? Man, of course. And yet, man is revealing himself for what he truly is through his temperance in this case. He is, uh, he is, he is showing what he is without excess and not that much. All right, last thing interesting about uh, Farisi. He's all the way up on terrace six of seven within five years of dying. Statius took him about 1,200 years to fully expiate himself of sin. This guy's almost done with it after five years. How? Well, apparently his wife, Nella, who's full of every virtue, very like Penelope, prays for him so much that she has shot him up the, uh, up the mountain. So I suppose the idea here, also like with Penelope, is marry the right person. They'll help you out quite a bit. All right. Notice this. Again, the M made by the cavernous nature of the faces. Notice that the eyes make it O-M-O, Omo, like Homo, like Womo, all mean man in uh, uh, medieval Italian, Italian, and of course Latin, all very closely related. In any case, as I was saying about the Tensone, Dante mentions that they must both feel weighed down now. I was talking about his moral transformation as he exerts himself going up the mountain. Rather than sitting and joking around and saying, oh man, those jokes we made were so funny with each other, he says, ah, you know, that, that was a time in my life I'm not particularly proud of because my character has become more upright. And so he says these crude and these vulgar jokes, uh, I'm sure they still kind of weigh us down. So the Tensone, I describe them very quickly as sort of rap battles. This is uh, a more uh, technical definition. A literary dispute in which two writers show off by alternately insulting one another. And this was a popular medieval genre. Remember, genre is type of literature. An early precursor of the verbal dueling heard today in rap dissing. In fact, I, I could give you an actual uh, example. I think they're called epic rap battles of history are, are good modern examples of this. Uh, a personal favorite of mine is Gandalf versus Dumbledore. Gandalf versus Dumbledore. I think Gandalf actually says, Dumbledore, you're just a ripoff of me. And it's like, well, yeah, true. In any case, the combatants usually take a word or an image from the previous poem and use it as a hook upon which to hang a new theme. I'll show you this on the next slide. And we find six sonnets here exchanged between Dante and Parisi. These are the following lowlights. Lowlights as in opposition to highlights, of course, because this is vulgar or crude. All right, Dante says he feels sorry for Farisi's coughing wife. Her cough, her cold, and I'll leave it to your imagination what's being insulted here. And all her other fears are not because she is advancing years, but only for some lack inside her nest. The morning after, a coughing fit. So you can see the coughing picked up here. Farisi expects to find pearls and coal, gold coins in the graveyard, but instead comes upon an Alighieri, Dante's father. So he's saying your father's so greedy that he digs up Praise of people that he commits sacrilege in order to do it. Dante then picks up on the not motif in order to underscore Farisi's dissolute ways. It doesn't actually say not here, which can be confusing. And mind you, even if you stopped your gluttony, so Farisi is directly here called gluttonous, it's now too late to pay back what you owe. I'm not going to keep reading all of these, but you will have them 
sent to you um, in the slides. These are the Tinsoni. This is the sort of thing that young people say to each other. Think about to your own lunch yesterday. Did anybody make fun of somebody else and did you laugh? The answer is hopefully. In any case, the second poem or second poet that we meet is Bonajunkta Daluka. He is from the Tuscan city of Luca, as you would expect, because he is Da Luca, from Luca. He played an important role, though not the preeminent role, in the development of Italian lyric poetry. Obviously, Italian lyric poetry is very dear to Dante's heart, because in a work before the Divine Comedy, the Vita Nova, he included several sonnets and pieces of lyric poetry. Before one becomes an epic poet, writing a 14,000-line uh, epic poem after having been exiled, one has to practice. So just like Virgil wrote the Eclogues and the Georgics before the Aeneid, so did Dante write the Vita Nuova, before, uh, which is a prose philosophical work, before writing the uh, Divine Comedy. In any case, Italian lyric poetry itself took influences from the poetry of Provençal troubadour, troubadours, the Provençal troubadour poetry. Troubadours are people like Homer, like Rhapsodes, people who walked around singing. Uh, uh, traveling minstrels. In any case, we will meet the preeminent traveling minstrel from Pro from Provence, the Provencal man, uh, Arno Daniel, right before we see Virgil disappear today. We've got a lot of poets to meet. Guido Guinizelli as well. In any case, something interesting about that troubadour poetry is it was first developed in the court of Frederick II. The same Frederick II was amongst the heretics, not amongst the violent, as I had erroneously been saying when we discussed Manfred back early in the Purgatorio. In any case, two things important, or three things important by, about Bonajunta here. Two people he mentions, the notary, Giacomo Dalentini and Guitone, he mentions did not have the same ability as Dante. In fact, these were all people that Dante considered lesser poets than he. Uh, the second big thing he does is he gives a name to Dante's style of lyric poetry. The dolce still Nuovo, the sweet style new, the sweet new style. He is the one that gives name to it. And so apparently Dante is so famous that even the dead know of him. Just as uh, Statius is recognized in the dead by Virgil, or rather vice versa, uh, uh, Virgil is recognized by Statius, so here is Dante recognized by one of the dead, Bonajunta. He's being uh, treated with great uh, respect in this moment. And then the last thing you need to know about Bonajunta, three of three, is that he actually quotes a line from Dante's Vita Nuova back to him, showing that he has read Dante, that Dante is becoming an author of some preeminence, that not only is he transforming in terms of becoming more upright and less vulgar and more sophisticated, but his reputation is even transforming. He is becoming a bigger name, a more household name, a quotable name. And the line, of course, is ladies who have understanding of love. And so you would expect... Uh, multiple of those words to be involved in some sort of sweet love poetry, especially if it's called the Dolce, Dolce Stil Nuovo. Ladies, obviously going to be a big part of it, and also love. Understanding, too, very interesting, showing his uh, sort of understanding of the Odyssey, though he didn't get to read it. That is, of course, uh, what Antinous describes Penelope as being, uh, or what Antinous describes Penelope as having better than any other woman ever to have existed during the Greek times, she has great understanding. She's very smart. Just very similar to Arete as well as books 6 and 7 of the Odyssey. So, last thing Bonajunka, Bonajunta mentions. He says this word, Gentuka. Gentuka seems to be a reference to a woman who will take Dante in during his exile. So what this reveals to us is a question that was asked earlier. Can the souls on the Purgatorio 
see the future like the souls in the Inferno can see the future. Do they have access to Hyperopia? Well, if she is prophesying here about the future of Dante, or rather, if Bonajunte is prophesying here about a woman taking Dante in during his exile, the answer is obviously yes. Now, something interesting about the criticism of Guitoni, remember, he's the one that's not the notary that was talked about by Bonajunta, is that his uh, art, his poetry is too artificial, didn't sound right, didn't sound natural, and too highly stylized. Was obviously had a lot of work into it, wasn't synthesized well. Well, this reminds you a little bit of Candy, which is itself highly stylized in terms of the packaging and also generally the shape and also uh, obviously the color. M almost every part of Candy, almost always, unless there's some fruit in it, is totally artificial. Well, that's showing you why these poets are here. Not only was Parisi actually directly called gluttonous by Dante, but the idea behind someone who's gluttonous is they have too much of a sweet tooth. And well, what's the problem with these poets? Well, they were too sweet. They liked artificial conventions too much, like someone who likes too much candy. As if the idea is that if you just spend your time reading fluff, vulgar literature, or just romance literature of not high quality, it's as good for your mind as candy is for your stomach. Which is, I think, a powerful, powerful claim. In any case, we must now ascend to the final terrace of the Purgatorio. We must now venture towards the lustful cantos 25 to 27. Quite a bit will happen here. We have two final poets meet, Guido Guinizelli and Arno Daniel. I'll do my best to speak in some uh, Provence for you, or Provençal for you, which is a, a derivative of, uh, of French. I'll do an okay job. You'll hear it a little bit. You'll probably have some criticisms and some notes. We'll also see here the final purgatorial fire that Dante must pass through. We'll see Virgil encourage him, and then we will see Virgil's last words, and then we got to go. All right, up on the Terrace of Lust. First things we're going to talk about are the examples, first, of chastity, where we will see Mary, of course, mentioned first, and then the examples of lust. The first come, uh, Canto 25, 127 to 132. The second, 26, 42, 42. So, ah, yes, and before I even mention that is, what is happening on this terrace? So just as the gluttons beneath two trees are constantly afflicted with terrible hunger and thirst and are so emaciated from starving, from fasting, I suppose, since it's, uh, it's willingly imposed on them, so are these souls encased in fire. So as Dante walks up the terrace, on the right is the edge. You see he's going up to the right. On the left is the, uh, the cliff face. And on that cliff face, there are flames raging out from it in which sinners are dancing in pain, essentially. So that is what Dante will see here. From that raging fire, we hear the penitents themselves giving these examples of chastity. And the first one comes from Mary. And she says, Virum non cognosco. Man, not I know. I know not a man. That's a reference to the fact that she had a child by being uh, uh, divinely impregnated, which means that she did not suffer lust before having her child. She has a virgin birth, a parthenogenesis, which is what it's called, which is why she's sometimes called the Virgin Mary, because though she, though she had a child, she knew not man. And she knew not the lust that accompanies often the act which produces a child. Similarly to that, we have, again, an example from Ovid's Metamorphoses uh, of Diana, who is herself a virgin goddess like Mary, um, uh, had a cult of virgin, Parthenoi, or Parthenai in this case, where her nymph Callisto is actually raped by Jupiter. Again, 
If she's raped by a god, she obviously did not want this to happen. She did not herself experience lust. And she does become pregnant, and she is kicked out of the cult callously by Diana because she is no longer a Parthenos. So these two women are women who became pregnant and had children, but did not have the accompanying lust that one might claim that one who chose to copulate and have a child uh, would have felt, which I think these are powerful examples. Now, the examples of lust, far more powerful, far more interesting. Always the vicious examples are the most interesting ones. That's why they say if you're going to go to a college and you have the uh, chance between reading the official guidebook to the college and the unofficial one, can you guess which one most people would choose to read? Unofficial. Unofficial, because it's going to include all the things you're not supposed to know. In any case, examples of lust, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah seems to be the name of one city. I've, I've tried to look this up before. I'm like, is it Sodom and Gomorrah? I think it's Sodom and Gomorrah. In any case, these there are uh, spirits here split into two divisions amongst the lost people. Those that were homosexual uh, and those that were heterosexual. This here is the example of those who were deviant and what Dante would call the homosexual way. And so these Biblical cities, I guess they are described by cities, were destroyed by fire and brimstone for the transgressions of their inhabitants, including sinful sexual relations between men. Here, I'll even show you the story. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, even time. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay! But we will abide in the street all night. And Lot says, ooh, no, you don't want to do that here. And he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast. And did bake unleavened bread. And they did eat. Sounds like good zinnia from Lot. Which is actually how I interpret this story. Not how Dante does. But I'll tell you that in a moment. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Saddam, confessed the house round. That means they, they surrounded them. Both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot. And said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. That know there is very famous from the KJV. Uh, know means know in the biblical sense. It means that they want to lay with these two angels. They want to take them out into the streets and uh, ill-use them, you might say. Now, I think that's not the point of this story. I think the point of the story is about the zinnia and how the zinnia gets trespassed. Oh, yes, because of what's done by those men in that city. The city gets burned to the ground the next day, and Lot and his wife get to go on and survive. Um, but so, I think that story is about what happens to a city when it gives up on justice and no longer uh, upholds the zinnia. But Dante thinks that that's what happens when you attempt to uh, 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 abduct men and engage in, um, uh, well, the something unspeakable, I suppose you might say. Something unspeakable. In any case, the second example. Uh, I would say far more unspeakable in some ways than the first example, though uh, uh, the first one was pretty negative, and that makes sense at the top of the purgatorio. In any case, this is the example of Pasiphae and the Minotaur. Now, well, this is a very famous story. Uh, Hera became very angry at Pasiphae, and she gave her a very unnatural lust for a white bull. So she thought a white bull looked very handsome and wanted to lay with him. She then went to the great inventor Daedalus, who invented later on the labyrinth for her son from the light bull, called the Minotaur, and create, and Daedalus created for her an effigy in the form of a bull. She then got into that effigy. She then uh, was uh, mated to the bull uh, in secret. She then became pregnant, and then she had the Minotaur. Her secret did not stay secret for very long. 
my King Minos and Shame created the labyrinth, put the Minotaur in there, and uh, for his son, his natural son who died in a war against Athens, he had a seven-person um, tariff every year from Athens. So they would have to send seven young people to the labyrinth that would then be killed and eaten by the Minotaur until the great hero Theseus showed up and killed that Minotaur with the help of Ariadne and her golden thread. In any case, the idea here is that uh, it destroyed her life, this terrible sexual union, in the same way that lust destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Give into these vices, even whether they seem small, they have tremendous uh, costs. It's like when you start pulling one thread out from a rug, you might end up pulling the whole rug apart itself. And so these are the examples. Let's get to the last two guys we need to talk to uh, or talk about today before we leave Virgil behind us forever. The two poets that we meet now are Guido Grinizelli and Arno Daniel. As you would expect, they are love poets. And remember while we're talking about the lustful here, being back among the lustful in Inferno 5, remember who was there? Francesca herself was something of a love poet, speaking with all her language of love. And herself read love poetry, the, love, the poetry of Lancelot and Gawain, or and, and Lancelot and, in particular, Guinevere. And so, Guido Guinezelli. Notice also here that he is in Canto 26, just as Arno Daniel is. Recall what I said in Inferno 26. In the Canto 26 in the Divine Comedy, whether it be in the Inferno, the Purgatorio, or the Paradiso, is the, is the poet, or excuse me, is the Canto of poetry and language. And so in that first Canto, the, or the first 26 in Inferno, we saw Ulysses, and he was encased in flame, just like Arno Daniel and Guido Guinizelli are in place are encased here in flame. We also did not get to hear Ulysses directly because he speaks Greek and Dante and us don't speak ancient Greek. Well, Arno Daniel here speaks in his original language of Provençal. I will show you the language. It remains untranslated in Dante's The Divine Comedy. It is translated for you in your translation, but in the actual uh, manuscripts of The Divine Comedy, the language changes from Italian to this French dialect of Provençal. It is the only time that a character gets to speak in his native language if it happens not to be Italian. It is tremendous re respect by Dante, though something funny about this is the lines that are spoken in Provençal are not lines from the work of Arno Daniel. They are lines written by Dante, which I think is wonderful. In the same way that all, almost all uh, Virgil's lines are written by Dante. In any case, yes, good. Guido Guinizelli, who was he in particular? Well, he was the founding father of lyric poetry. So do not get him confused with Foresi Donati, who was helpful in founding. This guy is the founder. And Dante sought to emulate and perfect this style with his Dolce Still Nuovo. Well, he was inspired by an ennobling conception of love, quite the opposite from a vulgarizing conception of love that makes you more bestial or animal. Such poetry in Dante's view was characterized by a beautiful, harmonious style, worthy of its subject matter. Love is supposed to be the highest concept, the highest virtue. It should have the most beautiful language. It should have the most ennobling effect, not the most pornographic or negative effect. It should not simply focus on that which is sensual or physical. It should focus on that which is metaphysical or theological, that which is eternal, that which is actually beautiful about love, not that which is shared within animals. That was the idea of Guido, and that is what Dante liked about Guido. Well, Guido's reputation was already noted by a penitent on the Terrace of Pride back in the first terrace, 
And he appears here on the seventh and final terrace of purgatory, purging himself of lust within flames, shooting across the mountain pathway. So, Arno Daniel. He is himself singled out by Guino Guinazelli, showing that he's no longer super proud. As the better craftsman of the mother tongue, he says, hey, I was a great poet, and I was the founder of the Italian lyric poetry, but there is yet another person who is a better poet of his mother tongue, though I speak Italian, you speak Italian, Tuscan, this man speaks a derivative of French Provençal. And so, uh, something interesting about him is that that line, better craftsman of the mother tongue, which is obviously written by Dante, not by Guido Guinzelli or Arno Daniel, though they're featured here, was a line used six centuries later, uh, 20th century, by, our, uh, yeah, 20th century in the 1900s, by T.S. Eliot, who's a very famous poet who I hope you read, senior year, in, as an epigraph to his The Wasteland, which is his most famous poem, to honor a man named Ezra Pound, who was an excellent poet, helped to get Ulysses, first published by James Joyce, but uh, unfortunately joined the Italians during the World Wars and became a fascist. Uh, in any case, Dante's, in Dante's poem, this better vernacular poet is, as I've been saying, Arno Daniel, a Provençal poet from the 12th and 13th centuries, so just a little bit before Dante was uh, around, uh, just before he was born. So, Arno Daniel himself. He is praised by Dante for his love poetry, and known also for his technical virtue awesome. He was a very technical poet. He dotted his I's, crossed his T's very well. In fact, he invented a type of poetry called the Sestina. You can see that word for six in there, in which the same six rhyme words are used in each stanza according to a precise formula. Obviously, Dante cares about this very much with his terza rima, as well as his very, uh, 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 um, let's see, what am I trying to say? Uh, and also the inclusion of his tercets. He is obviously a very technical and tightly wound poet, or tightly put together poet. In any case, Arno's high poetic standing is reflected in the purgatorium not only through the courtly content of his words, he says some very courtly things, he sounds like a very refined person, he is being refined by these flames of lust that he finds himself in, but this is, as I've said repeatedly at this point, the only instance in which the entire, or in the entire Divine Comedy, in which a non-Italian character speaks in his mother tongue, obviously all the Italian ones get to speak in Italian because the work is written in Italian. And so, here it is. I'm going to do my best to read this to you. Imagine that this is somebody that's doing their best who's not an expert at French. And so the first line is actually in Italian. El comincio liberamente al dire. And then this is what, um, this is what, <laughs> what Arno has to say. Tan mabile vos cortemain que no pues ne voir a vos cabrera. Yo soy Arno. Que ploy a vos cantan, consiro. Ve la pasada polar. E ve yo san la joie que espera lo. Ero vos prec. That last word of pain. And something interesting just to notice in these lines is that Dante keeps the terzarina going. Notice demand, cantan, danan, and valor, valor, delor, and uh, dira, cabrera, and the word uh, in the line above the line above dira is actually also uh, rhymes with dira. And so, it's very interesting. Dante is allowing him to speak in his native tongue while writing himself in a tongue that is not native to him and putting a structure onto the words of Arno that he gives to them rather than what are natural to him. And so it's like he is taking Arno into himself and expressing what he has learned from him in his own poetry. In any case, we have two final things to discuss today. The final dream of Dante the third and final dream and the exit 
of Virgil, and we have about four minutes to do it. So, Dante's third and final dream on the Mount of Purgatory is as clear and tranquil as the first dreams were fraught with violence and sexual angst. Notice, the first, uh, and which makes perfect sense now that he is about to get out of the terraces of Purgatory where you cleanse vice and sin and into celestial paradise. He is going from a place of storm winds into a place of calm. And so recall the first two dreams. Ganymede's abduction. Remember, he was abducted by Zeus, by Zeus or Jupiter's eagle, because he was beautiful. So there is an element of uh, not romance, but uh, sexuality there. And then recall also the second dream, the siren. Well, the, the siren is deeply sensual and leads uh, 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 sailors to their doom because of their beauty, the beauty of their song and the beauty of their figure. In any case, the siren also represents the three sins at the top of purgatory, one of which is, of course, lust, another gluttony. These are the carnal sins, also avarice and prodigality. And so now, rather than having a violent and sort of vicious dream, we now have a very pleasant dream. And so what do we see? What do we see? I, I, you don't need to write that. After witnessing all these painful purgations, we now get to see a scene of pastoral calm, calm as in like in a pasture land, a grass, like imagine little house on the prairie. Uh, and so who do we see here? We see two characters, one named Leah, one named Rachel. Leah is moving her hands, making a garland. Rachel is looking in the looking in a mirror. And so, moving her hands. Leah represents what is called the active life. Whereas Rachel, who is reflecting, literally looking at her reflection, represents a second sort of life, the reflective sort of life. These two characters come from a story in the Old Testament about Jacob. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. And so he worked seven years to marry her. But at the end of those seven years, he was told by the man who was the father of Rachel, oh, I said you could marry my daughter. And my daughter is Leah. So if you want Rachel, you have to work a whole another seven years. The idea being that you have to put in the work before you can reflect. Or that the good life involves not only work or practical affairs, but also contemplation and reflection. Not one, not the other, both together. In any case, Leah was the first wife of Jacob and bore him seven children, while her younger sister Rachel, his second wife, died while giving birth to their second child. You notice that uh, nine Holy nine. In any case, something important here is that in the Convivio, this is another work written by Dante. Remember that he had four works. Monarchia, Convivio, La Vida Nuova, and also uh, the Divine Comedy. He intended to have 15 works, but he didn't finish. He agrees with Aristotle that a life of contemplation, of thinking, is a better than a life of action. But here he seems to move away from that and suggest that in order to live a good life, you can't just have one or the other, just as I said. You need to have the appropriate mix of both, like Jacob marrying both of these women. In any case, I, I have it here. You don't need necessarily to write this because you have written this. Leah represents the active life. Rachel represents the contemplative life. Leah represents activity because she's actually engaged in an activity, gathering flowers, like someone who is a, uh, a, a, a gardener. Notice that garden imagery. And then pasture. And then Rachel never stops looking in the mirror, like someone who is constantly reflecting. Jacob marrying both is a symbol for the good life being uh, a balance of active and reflective life. And, of course, that's what you have to do on the purgatory. During the day, you suffer in penitence. During the night, you get to reflect on things, often having dreams. All right. All right. This comes from the convivio. We must know, however, that we may have two kinds of happiness in this life according to two different paths. Uh, skipping a little. One is the active life. The other, the contemplative life. Uh, the best happiness and state of bliss 
comes from, oh, let's see, and although by the act of, as has been said, we may arrive at a happiness that is good, the other leads us to the best happiness and state of bliss, as the philosopher proves in the 10th book of the ethics. So, contemplative life was best to Dante during the convivio. He seems to have changed his mind. All right. Now we have one minute to say the final things that Virgil says. So first he, he gets uh, Dante through a fire, reminds him of Beatrice. He says, my son, though there may be suffering here, there is no death. Remember, remember, if I guided you to safety even upon the back of Geryon, then now, closer to God, what shall I do? And even if the bell rings, listen, there are only two slides left. When he saw me still halting obstinate, he said, somewhat perplexed, now see, son, this wall stands between you and your Beatrice. Dante has to get through this final fire. So Virgil encourages Dante. Virgil reminds Dante that there is no death to fear. And Virgil reminds Dante of his motivation to see Beatrice again. And now, here are the final lines of Virgil. My son, you've seen the temporary fire and the eternal fire. The temporary, purgatory, eternal, inferno. You have reached the place past which my powers cannot see. I've brought you here through intellect and art. From now on, let your pleasure be your guide. You're past the steep and past the narrow paths. Look at the sun that shines upon your brow. Look at... The grasses, flowers, and the shrubs born here spontaneously and of the earth. Among them, these are the last lines, you can rest or walk until the coming of the glad and lovely eyes, Beatrice. Those eyes that weeping sent me to your side, await no further word or sign from me. Your will is free, erect, and whole. To act against that will would be to err. Therefore, I crown and mitre you over yourself. Good work, students. Virgil is gone.